Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. I'm Anna. And I'm Becca. And joining us today is my good friend, Dr. Brashani Reese. Hi, Brashani. Thanks for joining us. And we'd love it if you could tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I am a criminal justice reform activist, public speaker, and writer. I currently live in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I've resided for quite some time. I'm originally from Lynn. And I have a lot of experience in Salem. Uh, so thank you so much for having me. We're super excited to have you. So before we get into um, the justice work that you've mentioned that you're doing, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your background, since this is, you know, which city witches. The question that we ask almost all of our guests is, do you consider yourself a witch? And the follow-up would be, what does that word mean to you? Thank you so much for the question. Uh, Absolutely, I consider myself to be a witch. I have considered myself to be one for probably about the last 20 years. I encountered Wicca very young and started learning and reading about it and practicing it uh, from a very young age. And it's an important part of my spiritual practice today. So I guess that would go on to say that being a witch, I believe is, for me, it's a very deeply spiritual practice. It's a deep connection to self and and really bringing forth the energy of the universe. I guess that would be my shorthand explanation of what I think a witch is for me. Do you consider yourself Wiccan still? I I loosely consider myself Wiccan. I, I more strongly identify as a solo practitioner of paganism. And I... Yeah, I just sort of use that broadly speaking because um, a lot of my practice has just been picking up pieces of information from friends who are knowledgeable and experienced and really taking what I like and leaving the rest. And so there's not a lot of doctrine that I follow or a lot of books that I refer to as reference guides or anything formal of that nature. And I've always been a solo practitioner. So I just generally identify with as a pagan. So I know that you grew up in Lynn, which of course is just right over the border from us here in Salem. And you, um, you know, you've had a lot of experience coming into Salem and shopping in the shops and participating with some of um, the public events that happen. What is your experience with that has been? So interestingly enough, I was born in Lynn, Massachusetts, but my parents really struggled with living in the city. And I, so I was actually raised in Down East Maine, but I returned to Massachusetts as pretty much as quickly as I could at about the age of 20, 21. And when I returned, I came back to Lynn. And it was a completely different place from what I remembered as a child. And my fit, but my family was still there. What's so great about Salem is that I felt as if when I was growing up in the woods, I had this very natural inclination to, uh, to Wicca and paganism in part because of the environment that I grew up in. And then it was one of the things that when I came back to Massachusetts, I actually felt like culturally that was going to follow me back. It wasn't like something that I had to leave behind um, like I had to leave so much of my life behind when I, when I came back and Salem was a natural fit. And as soon as I was back in Lynn, I remember the day that I arrived, it was probably by that evening I was, I was back in Salem and, and exploring and a little bit like a kid in a candy shop, <laughs> to be honest. 
so you mentioned that you've always been a solo practitioner is have you tried working in groups do you prefer not to work in groups because we've also had discussions on here about solo work versus coven work versus grove work and it's mm-hmm. always interesting to hear how people feel about that oh definitely i i grew up in such a rural place that I did not know of any other practitioners, just so generally speaking as an adolescent, that was the initial struggle, was just not having a community around me. Then when I went to my first round of college, I was in Southern Maine before I came back to Massachusetts, and I did find some other practitioners, but the practitioners that I encountered in those spaces were very rigid and the doctrine, there, there seemed to be an intense doctrine around what it meant to be practicing. And so some of the ritual work I found to be really great. And actually some of the moon magic work that I still use to this day came from those experiences of working in that group. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I found that whenever I was in conflict with the person who was the the head of the coven, whenever I was in conflict with him, it felt really wrong. Like it felt really wrong. It wasn't just like, oh, I, I'm not into this. It's It actually felt like it was going into places that were really damaging, not just for me, but the people around me. And there was just sort of this, he's this ultimate authority. And as a woman who's also been very aware of sexism and very aware of patriarchy and also very aware of the exploitation of young women, I was 18, 19 at the time and surrounded by other 18, 19 year olds. And this individual was in his 40s. And there was this feel at times that when it went into that place, my intuition was saying, get out, don't do this, walk away from this. And, um, And after I did, actually, when I came back to Massachusetts, some people reached out to me afterwards and said that they had also left and had felt that 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 air of legitimacy was no longer present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's come up with a few of our other guests um, talking about how um, the power dynamics of the group structure and how if uh, if they're not exactly right, like, you know, there's a real you know, there's a real um, opportunity for abuse um, with, you know, with that power structure. Um, Yeah. So it's unfortunate that you had that experience. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a conversation that's coming up a lot in, you know, pagan and witchcraft circles. Now people are coming forward and talking about how there has been a lot of abuse and how uh, predators are using, you know, witchcraft spaces because witchcraft spaces tend to be more open sexually and you know sex magic is a thing ritual uh, sex is a thing and people are using that to take advantage of people who are in vulnerable positions who are looking for spiritual guidance and then get pulled into these situations and that's really really unfortunate so we always try and remind our listeners that you know there is absolutely no path of witchcraft that is right for you if you are being forced into uncomfortable situations Right. So it's always good to <laughs> restate that. No, um, and I, I appreciate that because when I initially left and I came to Salem, one of the things I was seeking were other people who had similar experiences as me because I didn't want to lose my commitment to to the practice, but I was afraid that some of those experiences had, had permanently altered me. I'm very happy to say that that ended up not being the case and that was just really a fear uh, that I had uh, that was 
ended up being okay, you know? Good, yeah. yeah. So, Barashani, I understand that your witchcraft practice informs your social justice work, and I'd love to hear about that. Absolutely. One of the initial draws of witchcraft, witchcraft practice for me as a young person was that I experienced a lot of trauma growing up and I was isolated. And therefore, some of the normal community outlets of going to church or, you know, finding community spaces like that were just not options that I considered. They didn't feel right to me. They didn't feel like safe spaces. It didn't feel like my community. And I, because I was drawn to the practice, I thought, well, at the very least, I can read about this myself. This is in my control. This is, this is for me. And this is something I can keep secret to me as I grow up and move into the world. And what I, understand now looking back because it wasn't like something i knew going forward that oh being involved in in paganism and witchcraft influences my social justice work that wasn't a, a thing i thought as i was moving into the work but it's more like as i look back on it i realized that i believe that we can always find our way back to our true selves and so regardless of the trauma that we experience that, yes, I understand shapes us and may permanently alter some behavior or some attitude or whatnot, I believe that when we're practicing, we are more in touch with the source. And in being in touch with the source, it is a reminder that I am an extension of source and therefore I am enough. I am as I should be. I am you know, all of the things that I think our society really pushes back on and tries to say, you should be better, you should be smarter, you should be thinner, you should be whatever, fill in the blank. And to me, when I'm practicing and I have that connection to source, it is that envelopment that reminds me I am a part of the universe. And therefore, I can always, I can always tap into that when I'm feeling fear, when I'm feeling sadness or overwhelmed, or even when I'm feeling joyful. And I just want to feel that connection to others and to the, the collective. When I work with people in, when I have worked with people in the prison system, whether they've been incarcerated or their family members who have loved ones who are incarcerated, the number one thing that comes up is trauma. And people who are in prison are highly traumatized. Many research studies have, have established that we're talking upwards of 90% of any given prison population has complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, recovery for those individuals, and I mean recovery as in rehabilitation, being able to come back into the community, is actually finding their way back to who they originally were prior to the trauma. What's the adult version of who you are and what part can you shed of that trauma in order to really be yourself again. And the practice of paganism and Wicca, I believe helps you really tap into that source that is you as an extension of source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because a lot of times when people, there's this, you know, this kind of pop culture story of, you know, they found God in prison and turned their life around. And God is assumed to be Jesus. And, um, you know, in your experience, you're working with people, you know, sometimes you know, that religious experience is through paganism. And I know that you've worked with some people who have had direct experience with 
the challenges of having a Wiccan practice inside a prison. So, okay, so I, um, I don't know Brashani, so let's also, our listeners don't, so let's backtrack a little. So I know that you do social justice work and that you're working with folks who are incarcerated, but what exactly is it that you're doing? So currently right now, actually, primarily my role is as an educator about mass incarceration in the prison system and the struggles of incarcerated people and their families. Uh, The pandemic has been an interesting time and many of us have had to pivot in what it is that we do. Uh, So for instance, right now, the prison is is considered to be a closed system and, and that's a falsehood for many reasons, but one of the reasons that they can claim that is the Department of Corrections has shut down the entire prison system in terms of family, loved ones, and even volunteers and people who do programs um, provide education. It literally is a warehousing situation at the moment. So there's not a lot of work of any sort going on in really any prison in the United States right now because of the pandemic. So currently I've pivoted and have been focusing on the momentum around the Black Lives Matter movement because prison reform is a natural extension of the Black Lives Matter movement and Mm -hmm. been focusing more on helping people who don't know anything about prison have an introduction to the prison industrial complex of our country that has been operating for about 40 years right now at, at its current like rate of growth and capacity um so that's the that's what that's where i'm at right now yeah there's been a lot of conversation in witchcraft circles in the last couple years about uh the very intrinsic connection between witchcraft and social work because if you are someone who cares deeply about the planet and what's happening here and care about other beings you have to care about the ways that you know society is failing people uh so you know being a witch i think it's sort of necessary to be someone who supports the Black Lives Matter movement, who wants to see the end of mass incarceration and, you know, the school to prison pipeline, all of those things have to be something that you care about as a witch, because there's, there's no way that you can truly be supporting, you know, this, like the society that you're part of, if you're not paying attention to those issues. Yeah. And I think that with a lot of talk right now about, you know, defund the police, and it's all very much focused on, um, on the police, on that initial interaction. And um, of course, oftentimes that the police interaction is not the initial interaction. And this is something that has been building in communities since childhood, but really, you know, what happens after that, that interaction with the police is the prison system for, you know, for many people. And so I think that that's, you know, definitely something that needs to be addressed. I absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> and this might be a good time um, to mention that you do have, you're putting together a series of webinars and they are on YouTube, correct? That is, is there correct. A way people can find them? Uh, yes, I'm actually part of a nonprofit organization called I Am, just those two words. <laughs> and you can find us on Facebook, on YouTube, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. And um, if you find me on Facebook, Brashani Reese, you can easily link to my other social media platforms. Excellent. And so, Becca, you were bringing up the idea of the practice of witchcraft in, you know, within the prison system. And I will admit that I know nothing about that. So I'm really interested to learn more. Um, I'm very excited to bring 
forth one of my one of my dear friends who is actually on his way coming out of prison in the next 18 months he should be returning home and his name is chris and he was the first the first wicca practitioner that i met inside there a little over five years ago i'm not going to name the facilities that he has been in just for his own of safety. course um but i think probably Becca's point about finding God is a good place to start because prison is meant to tear people down. Prison is meant to break the spirit. It's very traumatizing. It is not built for rehabilitation. It's not built to be corrective for anybody's behavior. And when people do find success, quote unquote, in prison, it's usually in spite of the prison system as opposed to like with the assistance of the prison system. And one of the pieces of evidence of that actually is that in order to practice one's faith, you really do have to fit into a very well-defined doctrine box inside the prison. And anything that is outside of what I guess the average American citizen would recognize, or maybe even, I shouldn't even say average, I think somebody who just doesn't have a lot of exposure to different types of practices. If, if you're not practicing Catholicism, then everybody wants to know really what is it that you're doing. And in many, it varies from facility to facility, but even Chris talked about how many of his brothers would start out wanting to practice something in the natural-based Wicca pagan realm, but they would get easily frustrated by the stigma that it carries, by the treatment from the Department of Corrections, by the barriers that are put in place for them to practice, that they actually end up going over to Catholicism and saying, well, I'll do this for the interim while I'm inside. Which then, of course, reinforces this idea that there are no Wicca pagan practitioners in prison. Because then the Department of Corrections can say, well, there's not really a need. We don't really have to do anything for these incarcerated people on this front because there's not a need. And that's actually a myth. And so for someone who is, in, who is incarcerated, what does getting that recognition from the system mean? Like, what does it provide them that they're not getting you know, by practicing without recognition. So I'm going to take this opportunity to actually read a piece that he wrote to me when I asked him to lay it out for me, um, what it was, what it was like. So he said that the hardest lesson is that the administration considers us devil worshipers and do what they can to impede our spiritual practices. Uh, we have no place to come together because the monotheistic religions won't share their space with, quote, evil religions. We cannot order books based on spell work, rituals, history, or with any words like magic in the titles. They are banned for their negative and evil subject matter. And that ban actually comes down from the Department of Corrections Religious Review Board. So there are actually people in the system whose job it is to review any requests for spiritual practice and basically make a decision or a recommendation to the director of treatment about whether or not this group is quote unquote legit, you know, if they should be able to be allowed to practice. Um, Chris also said that unlike the other religions, they're not allowed to have any volunteers. So the other religions will often have at least a handful of volunteers who are coming in to do Bible study or some other type of ritual work, you know, practice with them. 
which is a great way to keep them connected to an outside community. And Wicca practices are not allowed to have uh, a volunteer in that capacity. They do in one facility, at least in Massachusetts, they do have a DOC employee who is not there to teach practice or participate in practice. She's actually there to make sure that nothing inappropriate happens during any of the of the work that is that is going on. Chris also said we are not allowed to create altars or handmade ritual implements for individual practice or for in our cell. Creating an altar will get your cell torn apart and have you placed in the hole, which is segregation, mm -hmm. um, while they conduct an investigation. And it's important to note for the outside person who's not familiar with prison, an investigation can have lifelong repercussions. So if you are investigated and then you're given what they call either a D report or a ticket, if you then go before the parole board, which especially in Massachusetts has a uh, seven to one law enforcement personnel and one mental health practitioner on the board of uh, the parole board, they will then bring up each and every ticket you've ever gotten and there is a heavy lean towards if you have any tickets at all that can basically land you there longer and, and, and impact your chance to come home. So it's not a small thing to be placed in segregation and have a ticket and investigation could actually impact you 10 years down the road when you try to come home. So, so basically being a practicing witch in prison can land you more prison time for trying to observe your faith. That is monumentally not, fucked up. <laughs> and not necessarily more time, just to make sure I'm being clear, but if they were considering letting you go home and they're going over your tickets, and if you think about a system that sees this as satanic and what the parole board is claiming to uh, try to assess is your risk, right? Can you return to the community and be a safe member of the community? Are you gonna harm someone? And if you consider this individual to be satanic, in their practices, then I, I could make a strong argument that the subconscious of the parole board is gonna be deeply impacted when they read that you have a ticket for creating a satanic altar. And yeah, that's, and that's just completely misrepresenting what witchcraft is. Witchcraft is not Satanism. Um, I mean, even when it was last, I think last spring, I went to the Cabot Theater to see the Satanic Temple's, you know, new documentary, and they were talking about, you know, like, Satanic Panic of, you know, the 80s, and it just makes me very mad to hear that that's still happening. I mean, of course, it's still happening, but that it can have such a huge impact on people who are trying to be rehabilitated. Yeah, Let's I mean, not, I mean, obviously, Wiccan isn't Satanic, but most Satanists aren't Satanic, like, in the yeah, classical sense. <laughs> Right, like the Satanic Temple is a political organization, not a religious organization. Yeah. Right. Although, so no, legally they are a religious organization. That's their whole point. Right. But if you actually go talk to them, they'll tell right. you that it's not a religion, it's a political protest. But yeah, you know, either way, um the, you know, the word, you know, satanic is being used to oppress people. It's super fucked up. So I mean for people who are, you know, witches who are not incarcerated, what can we do to help? I get that question all the time. And I wish, I, I want to say, oh, join me in this fight against mass incarceration and let's end it tomorrow. 
Um, so generally speaking, I, I ask people to become more educated about the prison system. And one of the things that I offer in all the spaces that I move into is if anyone is interested in having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, I make time for that. If anybody is interested in having me come and speak at any any gathering that you're doing, um, I also have formerly incarcerated friends who that I'm very close with that come and, and also speak to people as well. There are many people in the world who, or I should say in America, who ha don't know that they've met formerly incarcerated people because that's its own stigma. And so I, I really take advantage of any opportunity to bring those people into any community space and, and basically have them talk about their experiences because the way we're gonna end mass incarceration is to humanize the people who have experienced incarceration. And that's ultimately how we're gonna end it. Because as long as we continue to have them be an invisible population, our politics will reflect that they're not a priority. So that's the first thing um, that, I, that I urge people to do. I also um, ask people to get more involved with their local politics. So know who you're voting for when you vote for district attorney, for instance, that's the prosecutor that represents your, your county. Uh, know your politics for your local politicians. And if you are one of those people that call your representatives and your senators and whatnot, which I urge everyone to do, by the way, you can make a difference. If you call and just say, like, I, I am a supporter of criminal justice reform and I, I want to make that clear to my senator and my representative, that will actually allow them to then take action in the legislature, which is the only way that these laws change is when they believe that their constituents are actually interested in criminal justice reform. Because it's not a popular topic from their perspective. It's a dangerous one to go into. They see it as not a popular um, thing to do. And then lastly, on the practice front, for instance, Chris will be coming home in a year and a half. And one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is helping facilitate his desire to find a community. He's been a forced solo practitioner since he was a teenager. And he's at a stage in his practice where he's really, um, really motivated to learn and hear about other people's experiences and really just take in everything that he can. And it's probably one of the most important things to him when he returns home that he really wants to get involved. So when people meet somebody like Chris, I always hope that they will welcome him and that they will, you know, bring him into the space and really share their experience uh, with him and, and not stigmatize him for his past. Yeah, I feel like there's sort of multiple stages of intervention that need to happen. You know, I 100% agree that we need to stop, you know, mass incarceration and, and the industrial prison complex. But you know, and of course, I think that there is the reentry question that you just mentioned and making sure that we're receptive. But I'm also wondering what can we do to give, you know, freedom to practice to people who are currently incarcerated? Like, do we write petitions to facilities? Like what, like, is there actually anything that we can do to say, you know, you are not let, like you're not treating your, your population properly and giving them access to you know, religious and spiritual well-being in a way that serves them. And you need to recognize that this is a legitimate practice and you need to stop calling it Satanism, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it could be that at some point in the future down the road, that is something that maybe we could all join together in doing. This is one of the reasons that I say the Department of Corrections has little to no oversight. 
they really are their own entity. At the end of the day, their report chain goes directly up to the governor and they don't really have to report to anybody else. And that includes the public. So when their loved ones, which, you know, by the way, in the United States, it is now estimated that 50% of Americans have either a, a loved one who's either formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated. That's a large number. Wow. But we, uh, we as a population don't actually have a lot of control. The only way we get things from the Department of Corrections in terms of like rights for our loved ones and whatnot is through legislation, is through political pressure. Um, and there have been times where representatives and senators will show up to prisons unannounced, specifically because they're the only ones who have the right to access that facility pretty much at any time that they want. And the Department of Corrections is its own uh, ecosystem that's happening, and they don't have to report to us in any way, shape, or form. There's no, you know, they're not like a, they're, in many ways, the police actually have it better than, than you know, in terms of having to have some accountability for their day-to-day -day operations, whereas in the Department of Corrections really has little. Honestly, um, saying that the police is better at any sort of regulation is just the lowest, shittiest bar for anything. <laughs> that's actually why I make a point to say that because the police is one head of the hydra the prison industrial complex is the body of the hydra so if we address the policing issue we are we are addressing a symptom you know we're addressing like one tentacle of i know mixing my animal my mythology metaphors here but i'm, I'm <laughs> one you know arena when in reality it all comes back to the prison industrial complex and the brutality begins with the arrest but is perpetuated by the other heads of the of the hydra and within the system itself i wanted to get back a little bit uh, you're talking uh, when you're reading chris's letter um you know so you're not allowed to create your own influence you're not allowed to have an altar you're not allowed to have books you're not allowed to have volunteers how does someone have a practice what, well, what I guess what I want to know like? is, what do the other religions get? Do they get to make altars and have books? Well, they get space, first and foremost, which is gold in prison. So, because you don't have any privacy, you don't have any space or whatnot, and, and the other religions have spaces in which they're allowed to gather, and when they are gathering in that space, that space is off limits to others. And so, like, I remember one time I was inside with Chris and he was talking about how they had, he and a few other fellow practitioners had attempted to do a moon ritual. They were given some, some space in the, in the facility to do this, and, but the space wasn't blocked off to other people. So while they were doing the ritual, other incarcerated people are just, like, walking through their circle. Oh. And, Totally. It's just a, it's, it's just a really dehumanizing space. Um, and like we think about prison, but we don't actually think about what that entails. Um, like what does it actually mean to be locked up 24 seven, right? What does it mean to, to have all these things taken from you? And so the other religions, um, they get dedicated space. They get recognition by the Department of Corrections. So that does give them some leeway to say, hey, this is a holiday of ours. We want permission to, to gather. Because also permission to gather is not always granted. Um, the Department of Corrections controls whether or not a group of individuals can be together at any, at any time, um, especially from different units, right? So they can order books, they can order literature, they get their volunteers. 
uh, things like that. Um, and I do want to say some facilities are a little better about these things than than others. Um, but just sort of generally speaking, everything is controlled by the administration. So does that, I think that answers your question probably. Yeah, and it honestly just makes me want to, like, I don't even know if this is useful or not. We can talk about logistics later, like just get as many witches as possible to sign a petition to the you know Department of Corrections to say, like, you need to give people the freedom to practice this in the same way that you're giving the other religions, you know? Yeah, and there was there were two failed lawsuits that were actually brought against the Department of Corrections on this front. And I would say that a big factor of the failed lawsuits were um, that the Department of Corrections were able to, uh, I guess, outlast the incarcerated people. They felt just like they were just like, it, like it was a hopeless situation and they were attempting to change something that they felt like they were powerless to change. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that most people don't know what it's like to be incarcerated and I, I can't say that I do, but I have this memory from when I was in college. I actually studied environmental psychology. So, you know, I'm familiar with the Stanford experiment, all those things. But what I got to do as part of one of my, my classes, is we actually took a trip to one of the maximum security prisons in Connecticut, close to where I went to college. And uh, there were no death row inmates there, but they did have people who were serving life sentences. They had a you know, juvie section. And we got to walk through the whole thing. So I got to walk through the space where people got, you know, are, are taken in and get deloused. And I got to go into a cell and I got to, to that thing that you see in the movies where you're sitting on the other side of the glass with the phone, but I was on the inside. And I have to say, like, I obviously was there as a student and, uh, you know, experiencing no risk of not being able to come back out. And I felt nothing but dread being in there. I looked around at this place and I was like, there is no way that if I came into here, I would leave better. And that was really, really, you know, traumatizing. And I wasn't, I was only there for a few hours. And so I cannot even imagine having to live through the dehumanization of being in that system that claims to rehab people and does the complete opposite. Thank you for that point. Um, that's, that is probably the point of my work. Uh, many people, many Americans believe that people have done something to deserve this. And so uh, I could imagine that maybe some of your listeners, as they're hearing you talk, Anna, that some of them are already like writing the situation off in their mind a bit and saying like, well, you know, they did this, they did that or whatnot. And I think something to point out on that front is that Americans' attitudes about um about punishment and crime and, and violence are very different than the rest of the world. We're, we're extremely punitive. And also, I always pose the question to all of us. I say, how much of your life can you live without? Yeah, I so, mean, when I was there doing this tour, I actually saw a young man get taken in and I heard him say his name and his birth date. And I was like, oh my God, he's 16. You know, no 16-year-old deserves that. And I remember having a conversation with uh, with someone that I knew who was from Germany, and we were talking about this, and this was years ago, but she said to me, she's like, there is no life sentence in Germany. Like, everyone eventually gets out, no matter what you do. Correct. Yeah, and, that, and Germany is not alone in that. It's actually the opposite. We're, we're alone in our life without parole and uh, death penalty. We, you know, there are other countries that... that do it, but they're not usually countries that we would like to be in the same category as. 
Um, so the industrialized, civilized world. Um, funny enough, a place like uh, Rwanda has done better and they've experienced genocide and, and they actually do better with their, with their rehabilitation and their attitudes about life sentences than, than we do. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a, a totally different topic, but I think that, you know, when we talk about the prison industrial complex, I think that, you know, a big reason that, you know, from a commerce perspective is that the U.S. relies on prison labor, which is basically slave labor. It's like when slavery was outlawed in the U.S., it said, oh, in, unless it's a punishment. And, you know, the, we rely on that from the prisons to... They answer your calls when you have when you call a call center. They manufacture clothing. They, you know, so it's they put out forest fires in California. Like it's, I think that you know that the industrial part of the crim of the prison industrial complex is, uh, you know, it's not really part of the conversation that we set out to have today. But I think when we're talking about reform, it's something that can't be ignored. Yeah, right. I mean, it replaced slavery, right? Like we had people that we were forcing to do things for us so that we could be profitable and then slavery was abolished and so we stuck them all in prison. Yes, that is, uh, that is the short version. Yes, absolutely. Um, and for many people, just two quick points on that. One, um, many Americans have started to understand the horrificness of privatized prisons. But I want to emphasize that that's less than 10% of our prison system. And so even though it's worth addressing, it's not really the, the, the giant thing that people have talked about it being. It's not the only problem. And there is a nonprofit that has dedicated itself to outlining the private sector's involvement with our government, because that's who runs the prisons. And in just five states alone, one from each of the five regions of the United States. This nonprofit in May of this year identified 5,400 private companies who are either directly or indirectly involved in the ecosystem, the economy of the prison industrial complex. And that's in five states, 5,400 private corporations that benefit from the prison system. Yeah, that's super fucked up. <laughs> So obviously we swear on this podcast because I've been swearing a lot this episode, but it makes me mad. Um, but if it's okay with, with you, actually, I'd, I'd love to address Rebecca's question about what do you do? Yeah, of course. Practice, if that's okay. Just because a lot of this conversation is incredibly heavy. And even as a criminal justice reform activist, there are days that I wake up and I just feel like literally I'm trying to tear down a prison wall with my bare hands and that's not how that's, this is gonna get accomplished. So um, Chris told me that, that at one of the other facilities that he was at, he found, as I mentioned, a small group of other individuals who were interested in practicing. He had the benefit of, he also grew up in the woods like I did, and he had a natural affinity towards nature and a draw towards uh, Wicca and paganism and funny enough we're the same age so I also think it was around that time too that that many people were talking about it um, and he basically what he learned as a teenager is what he brought inside with him because he was incarcerated right after his 18th birthday um, right around that time so he, he's been incarcerated since yes that's a long time Yes, it's a long time. Our sentences are very long here in the United States. 
Um, so when he found these other individuals, uh, they were actually a hodgepodge of some Wicca uh, and some voodoo because voodoo is, votum is also considered to be, it's very looked down on and stigmatized in the prison system as well. And so they were, they were able to make a case to have some sacred objects for their ceremonies. So he said that they were given, um, they were allowed to obtain, I shouldn't say given, because they're never given anything. They have to buy everything in prison, including their soap and their clothes and anything to take care of them, themselves. Um, and they make 10 cents an hour uh, and the prices for everything is higher than out here. So they were able to obtain three small white candles, some frankincense, incense, salt, chalk, a small wooden pentacle, a red altar cloth, um, but they were not, they were specifically told they could have no wands, no herbs, no music, no statutory, um, statutory, wow, statuary, excuse me. <laughs> and those rituals had to happen at a particular time as dictated by the Department of Corrections, which is also typical for all, actually all practices in, inside there. Yeah, so how he practiced mostly was, was mostly was individually based on what he knew from when he came into prison. So he really clung to his moon rituals in particular, which for him were just basically being able to glance at and look at the moon and really focus on that imagery even when he was in his cell and really feel that presence and that connection to the universe was it was was a lot of the extent of his practice while he was inside very simple but so he took one of the things that you mentioned was that they are often denied volunteers and i find myself thinking is there also a lack of available volunteers who are looking to help guide witchcraft study in the prison system you know because even if volunteers are allowed how many folks who identify as high priests or high priestesses are actually going out and offering that and is that something that people can start doing that might make a difference right yes that is a great question i i would I'm going to take a guess that at this point, because it's not an approved practice, it has to be an approved practice in order to obtain a volunteer. So the director of treatment inside the facility has to agree to allow it to be an official quote unquote program, like an official, uh, something that's, that's official so that then they can solicit volunteers. So it, it could be a question of like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, it might be that if somebody was interested in, providing that type of service and doing that type of community work that maybe then the Department of Corrections would consider that, um, consider that request. And maybe there would be some legitimacy behind it if somebody did offer that. Um, but as of right now, considering they, they consider, they think of it as satanic, uh, my guess would be that even if somebody was available, the Department of Corrections wouldn't allow it to happen. Hmm. And so if someone was interested in maybe trying to do something about that, you know, would it make more sense to reach out to the Department of Corrections or would you reach out to a specific facility and say, you know, I live not too far and I'm interested in doing this outreach work for, you know, your population, you know, can we have a conversation? Like what's sort of, I guess, the best way to approach that? Yeah, I think the latter. So if you lived, you know, if you lived near a facility and you were interested in, in volunteering in that way, reaching out uh, an or, you know, an ordinary citizen can reach out to the director of treatment, for instance, um, and inquire about if there are any volunteer opportunities and also make themselves 
known to that facility to say, hey, I exist and I would and I would be open to that offering. Um, my guess is, again, I'm not trying to be so pessimistic, but because so many people who do practice converted over to Catholicism for a variety of reasons, I think the DOC would say that there's not a need. You know, we don't have a need. There's no desire for it. Instead of addressing the the barriers that they've put in place. And so with... <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead back. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, you've mentioned Catholicism several times. And I'm wondering, like, obviously, uh, you work mostly within the Massachusetts system and Catholicism is fairly popular in Massachusetts. But, you know, if people are, you know, Baptist or something, do they run into problems as well? Or is it like strictly Catholic? Okay, yeah, and I, I, I hope nobody took away from I'm not trying to pick on Catholicism. In fact, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm more saying that Catholicism has they have rituals, mm-hmm. and they have regular gatherings, and it really can be the easiest way for an incarcerated person to access some type of spiritual faith. And so when I mention Catholicism, it's actually that I'm more talking about like it's easily accessible and that's why that keeps coming up for me. There are other practices and, and you know, in the last decade, Buddhism, for instance, has, has very much become a common practice. And so they are given space. They, um, you know, can do practices. And Chris actually considers himself a hybrid, um, like pagan, Wiccan and Buddhism. And that's in part because Buddhism is is easily accessible in comparison to to paganism inside the facility. Um, so there are other groups, there are other religious groups, but it varies drastically from facility to facility. And really, what is what is the need, um, and what is the the culture within the prison system, which at baseline is dehumanizing, at baseline is stigmatizing. That's the baseline it's operating at. And for people who are interested in non-mainstream religions uh, within the system, obviously the the system itself is against these practices, but do they encourage the other prison inmates to also like bully those people? I, I don't know what terminology to use, but. That's a great question. And it's, I I'll talk about it from a, social psychology standpoint for a second, which is one of the greatest fears of being human is exile. So you take a population that has been exiled from our society, and that's a very heavy stigma that they carry every single day. And for many individuals, they report that on a regular basis, the correctional officers that they deal with, the administration that they deal with, will remind them on the regular that they are scum. You know, they did something to end up in here. They are evil. Um, when Chris actually was granted his ability to, to, to start the transition to come back home, he was told unsolicited by an employee that they disagreed with the parole board and no matter what he said, they would always consider him to be evil and manipulative and et cetera, et cetera. And that was just like an ordinary conversation that was happening after he was granted um, the ability to start transitioning home. So in that space, when you have a highly traumatized population that is feeling the burden of stigma, you don't really want to do anything to stand out from that group in a negative way. So I would also make the case that 
if you have a spiritual practice and it falls within a safe, safer, more acceptable space, it's, it's almost like a relief, like, oh, phew, I don't have to identify as this, as this weirdo, you know, as this like exile, in exile within exile. And so there are many other incarcerated people who treat this practice with the same level of, you know, misunderstanding as the administration, but they're actually doing it from a very strongly fear-based perspective. They don't want to be accidentally labeled as one of them or, you know, it's like you're already low on the totem pole and this gives you an additional bump down. So I don't know that direct bullying per se would be how I would describe it, but I think we can all imagine the social psychology results Mm -hmm. around that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's often hard to publicly identify as a witch, even when you're not, you know, when you're not incarcerated, right? Uh, Witchcraft exists on, you know, the fringes, the edges of society, you know, Uh, witchcraft was still illegal in the U.S. when Lori Cabot started openly practicing as a witch. And, you know, even in, uh, you know, non-incarcerated spaces, if you say that you get pushed back and you get treated like a weirdo or like, there might be something wrong with you and magical thinking and all that. And so I can only imagine that in a space where people are already struggling so hard with so much feeling of exclusion that it's even harder to be able to be a witch there. And so, but that makes me feel like it's even more important to support those who are openly practicing witchcraft or trying to, or, you know, owning the title of witch or Wiccan or pagan in that system. They really need support. Absolutely. Chris told me that when we first met, he felt like the goddess had sent him sent him a reminder that he was not alone because he was really starting to question his faith, his practice, and, you know, was he really on this wrong path? And then when we met, it, he, he lit up like a, you know, like a star and, and just could not wait to talk to somebody about, about this. So you're open with, uh, you know, the inmates that you meet about being a practicing witch? Oh yeah. (laughs) One of the, if you ever talk to any of the incarcerated people that I've worked with, what they'll tell you is that um, they didn't guess any of the things about me at all. And interestingly enough, I could tie that back to my experiences in Salem. If, if you don't mind, Um, people see me and there's a lot of projection around who I am and what life experiences I have and whether or not I meet particular criteria for, alter, I guess I would say, alternative spaces. And when I first started going to Salem, that was one of the things I ran into was um, that I'm not witchy enough, <laughs> that I don't look witchy enough. And there was a sort of like, well, you look very conventional. And for a number of reasons, I just look the way that I do. And I, you know, I dress the way that I dress and I do what I wanna do. And I don't allow myself to be pressured to, to do other things. And um, it's funny because I wouldn't pressure them to not be who they are, but I definitely felt a pressure to be something different in order to fit in in certain spaces in Salem. I want to emphasize that certain. Oh, no, absolutely, we've talked about that before too. That you you're expected to look witchy enough, and you know, there's definitely discussions of what it is to be a witch in Salem and present a witch as a witch and to not present as a witch, and why we even think that there's such a thing as a way that a witch should look. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, Chris did have a, a message that he asked me to read sort of as a, like a final thought. Sure. Of course. 
So he just wanted to say thank you, Rebecca and, and Anna, for this opportunity to speak my heart's truth. Though there are those of us who are incarcerated for crimes and harms we cause to others, there is a small few who hold the goddess in our hearts and carry her in our actions. We strive to practice our spirituality while also trying to make amends and bring, a, and bring healing to the many we've hurt. I can only speak for myself and of the intentions of love and compassion in my soul, but I am not evil. I'm not a monster. I cannot take back the suffering that I've created, nor do I seek to brush it under the rug or behind my faith. The moon rituals and ceremonies that I have worked on are based on love and a connection with those seeking healing and joy for all. I do not do any of my workings for self-gain or indulgence, and I wish for people to know that I understand that my taking of a life limits my work and my connection with the goddess, but that she will always be in my heart and in my actions. Goddess bless. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. And I love that he wanted to reach out and connect. Um, I'm wondering, is it, because you were talking about how hard it is for them to get supplies and how expensive everything is, even if something as simple as putting together like a witchy care package to send to folks that are incarcerated, is that something that we can do? No, so you can't, you can't do any of that. So for families who have loved ones inside, they'll tell you that it's incredibly limiting to try to get them the things that they need. And it's like, there, you can't just um, put together a care package for somebody and send it. There's canteen inside the prison, which is you know run by private corporations who are vendors. And they offer you know, a limited supply of, of, of goods and they're marked up. They often come with some sort of like fee uh, attached to the purchasing. Uh, and so the only way to actually facilitate an incarcerated person getting something is they have um, commissary accounts. So you can look up a person, you can look up their, their um, what many inside the prison would call their slave number. And you can go by that number to find them and then you can make deposits into their to their accounts on, on their behalf. There are surcharges to those things. So for instance, if I send $20 to someone inside, I'm charged a $7 handling fee for that. And on the other side- That was a huge percentage. Yes. <laughs> and then they are docked potentially on the other side, like another 10% of whatever it is that they're receiving. So it's just, it, it's just really a racket. <laughs> like it's, it's really a racket at the end of the day. Honestly, I, I mean, you know, this is your work and you're steeped in this all the time. And I've been having this conversation for an hour and I'm super angry at everyone. So I, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that, you know, the conversation we we're having earlier about like, you know, the industrial part of the, like people are making a lot of money on this. Like that's, you know, it's not, I know people want to say, oh, well, we need prisons because these people did bad things and, you know, they need to be punished. And I think that that is being exploited. That fear that people have is being exploited by yeah. these, these companies that are making a lot of money on this. There are only three telephone companies in the United States that offer telephone calls. And last year they made more than $84 million dollars. And that's on the backs of people who are incarcerated, but more importantly, I would say their loved ones. So even if we believe that there is a time of punishment that is needed, if there is a time, you know, like a sentence for somebody to serve, which is completely understandable, 
you are then taking our poorest people, oftentimes people of color, and you're asking their families to pay upwards of $500 to $1,000 a month to have phone calls with them. And that's not an underestimation. So if you want to have like four 20 minute phone calls a day and you multiply that times, like, let's say every day in the month, because oftentimes people want to speak to their loved one every day, especially if they have kids and they're trying to stay in contact with their children, you're paying $500 plus a month for phone calls. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously you talk about how America justice is, or the justice system is very different from other countries. And I think that one of the things is that, you know, obviously we're, we're running down on our hour right now and we want to close up. And I know you've gone over a lot of these things in your webinars that people can watch on YouTube for more information. But I think that the idea that um, we use prisons strictly as punishment, they're not rehabilitative at all. And for, and I know that right now you are working against the, you know, you're to eliminate life without parole, but most people are let out. Most people do not have life sentences and they are released and right. they come out worse than they went in. And, and so, then they go back yeah. into the system because right. they're not equipped to do anything else. Right. So, so if we, they if just we, keep yeah. cycling. <laughs> So if we want to, if we, we actually do want to reduce crime and we do want to reduce harm, then changing the prison system is a very important aspect of that. Yes. And something that people seem to somehow forget in our country is that there are survivors of violence and this is not tending to their needs. The idea that locking somebody up for the rest of their life soothes the trauma and the loss that that family experienced is really a, an American myth that we sell to survivors. But when the trial is over and the attention, you know, that the community is giving to that, to that family has long passed, the survivor is still left with the trauma of having lost somebody. And it's a very dissatisfying, um, we tend to the primitive need that is initial, the acute rage, in the acute need for revenge. But what about therapy? What about resources? What about jobs? There are, there are the survivors that lose their job going through the court process because they can't function at work. They're, they're too entrenched in their, not too entrenched, they're entrenched in their grief, rightfully so. Um, so then they don't have jobs. These are our poorest people who are also the victims of violence, right? And that's its own separate webinar. But I just want to make a plug for that there's a belief in America that if we rehabilitate incarcerated people and give them second chances, that we're, we're invalidating the pain of the survivor. And I make the argument for the opposite, that actually if we're working for accountability on the part who, of the person who did the harm, accountability is an active process. Right now, we are in a passive justice process. It's not an active process in any way, it's a time. It's a time-based. Yeah, and if we didn't have such wealth disparity and so many poverty problems, then people wouldn't be getting incarcerated as much because there wouldn't be such desperation for resources and people would be able to not have to live that way. You know, people are, so many people are committing crimes because there is no other option for them and then we punish them for it and we just keep perpetuating that. And so, you know, we do need to get rid of the prison system, but we need to provide people with resources so that we don't even need a prison system. So there's a whole, yeah, this conversation could obviously go for hours, but this actually makes me want to, I guess, mention, you know, uh, we've 
mentioned House Witch a few times on here, and our friends at House Witch have a podcast called Witch the Vote, and their entire argument is about the importance of political activism as a witch. So I guess this is where I want to tell everyone, please, please, please vote in November. You know, honestly, we need to take every step that we can, and we can't just keep waiting for the perfect person to show up and let things keep degrading because every step matters. And to the most vulnerable population, those little steps are not little, they're huge. So yeah, and also vote. vote for Joe Biden. I mean, he's not great, but he's what we got. Right. Not just vote in general. Do not <laughs> vote for some random third party because you're going to make a point about it. Biden like Harris has is who we have. <laughs> the point has been made. The country is in shambles. We're, you know, we are doing terrible at managing COVID because Trump dismantled our pandemic response system. So please be a good witch and vote. <laughs> Vote for Biden. <laughs> and, and also, if you're in Massachusetts for voting things, um, we have a question that's going to be on our ballot. I think it's question two. I'm not positive about, about ranked that. voting. Ranked choice voting. And so this means uh, if ranked choice voting is enacted, it's enacted in Maine right now. I And I think that's the only state that has it. But it means that you can say, okay, well, there's four candidates. I really hate one of them. I'm neutral about one of them one of them's okay and one of them's I really like but I don't think anyone else likes them you can vote for your favorite candidate who you think is awesome as your number one choice even if you think none of your neighbors are going to vote for them but then the one that you think is okay but not great but you think your neighbors will like you can say that's your number two choice and if you were wrong and your neighbors all did really like your first choice but they were also afraid that no one would vote for them your number one choice wins but if you are right, then your number two choice wins and you don't lose your vote. So definitely rank choice vote, vote yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's Prashani, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating and infuriating conversation. You know, as you think of ways that maybe witches can get involved in activism to help, please let us know because we're happy to you know, plug it in future podcasts and we'll be sure to include in the show notes all the information that you think is useful for people to have out there. Um, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know? No, thank you so much. I just want to say thank you to all the listeners and, and I know that Chris feels incredibly grateful too. And so thank you. Thank you for your curiosity for, for listening and, um, and seriously, look me up if you are connect. If you are interested in being connected to this work at all, if you want to be involved at all, look me up. Reach out. I'm I'm available. Basically, I live and breathe prison reform, so don't hesitate. And witchcraft. <laughs> you know that goes without saying. That's a daily practice that keeps me sane. Talk about anger. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Witch City Witches. And if you have any questions for us or for Brashani, email us at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. We'll be sure to send along your message. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Thank you.